The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, Simon R. Green returns to do an interview to discuss his latest novel, For Love of Magic a fast-paced romp through time as Jack Damon and his lovely companion try and keep the world safe from supernatural forces from the past. Interviewing Green is DJ Butler. That's in just a few moments, but first, the news. Speaking of Simon R. Green, for the month of May, we're celebrating Green with discounts on all his Bane eBooks backlist. Get $1 off Dead Man Walking, Haunted by the Past, The Dark Side of the Road, and Jekyll and Hyde, Inc. These discounts apply wherever Bain eBooks are sold and expire at the end of May. And that's it for the news. All right. Uh, hello, this is uh, uh, DJ Dave Butler, uh, and I'm here with uh, Simon R. Green to talk about his new novel, For Love of Magic. It's out now in hardcover. Very exciting. And in all your favorite uh, email formats drm free when you buy the ebook at bain.com um as always uh let's uh let's remind you a bit about simon it's not the first time we chatted with him uh simon uh green is the author of the best-selling death stalker cycle the new york times bestseller robin hood prince of thieves and uh many other novels he lives in bradford upon avon in Wiltshire. Uh, Simon, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, so actually, you and I started having a conversation before I hit record. I'd love to recap some of that. Um, tell us uh, tell us where the idea for, for Love of Magic came from. I think that's a fantastic story. Okay. I was rehearsing a play, which was Harvey. You might remember the film with Jimmy Stewart, where he sees an invisible white rabbit who turns out to be a puka, an ancient Celtic spirit. And I was saying to one of my fellow actors, why does it have to be a white rabbit of all things? Why not a beautiful young woman that you could fall in love with? And they said quite reasonably, because if they did that, it wouldn't be Harvey, would it? Well, I just thought this was a great idea. I thought, well, there's a puka. She manifests as a beautiful young woman. Our hero falls in love with her. It'll be a supernatural screwball romantic comedy. Addition of those, those wonder, again, Jimmy's all those wonderful old um, bringing up baby style uh, romantic comedies with lots of uh, banter going back and forth, lots of weird stuff happening. And I thought, this is tailor made for me. I'm going for this. And I didn't have a contract. It was all on spec. But once I sat down, it just poured out of me. And I got it done, handed it in to my agent, who said, this is a bit different from what you normally do. And I said, well, I've got my new publisher in America, Bain. Let's try them first. And they said, this is great. We love it. We want it to be our lead hardback. I went, great. Off we go. Yeah. Congratulations. We're, we're excited to have it. Uh, we've, uh, uh, we've got your Jekyll and Hyde Inc. books, right? And also, of course, the Ishmael yep. uh, uh, Jones, Ishmael Jones. That's uh, right, yes. Uh, series. Happy, thrilled to have you, Bane. Um, so, uh, Puka, of course, uh, Shakespeare's Puck. Um, uh, I think it's actually older than that. If you, I mean, I've, again, I've acted in Midsummer Night's Dream on three different occasions. And essentially, what you've got there is the Elizabethan period look at the fairies. Oh, and sure. the Puka is older, it's Celtic mythology. We're going back to fifth, sixth century England. The Pukas were the laughter in the woods, the wild, free spirit they were older than humanity and that's part of what makes this book work you've got our lead character now the basic idea behind love of magic is all those old stories the myths the legends the fairy tales once upon a time they were true that was history that's how we lived but at some point that history got written over and was replaced by the history we now have a history of science where magic never worked. But a few old things insisted on, on, on surviving. They got left behind. Our hero's job is to track down these magical remainers 
and treat them as unexploded bombs, defuse them, make them safe. And then he meets a young lady and he discovers that she is one of these reminders. And he starts to think for the first time, have I been wrong all this time? Have I been destroying something wonderful, something magical? So she takes him on a trip back through the magical history, because it's still there, just overwritten. And she takes him through history right from the beginning. We start with Boudicca or Bodicea, as the Romans called her. Then we go on to Beowulf, to uh, King Arthur, to Robin Hood. And we see the magical histories, the legends, the myths, not the cold, dark histories that we've grown used to. And she says to him, we can put it right. We can bring back magic. We can bring back the magical world. And he has to make a decision. Is that the right thing to do? But of course, it's complicated because he's fallen in love with her. And that's what gives the book its charge. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, let's talk about him, first of all. So sure. uh, Jack uh, Damon or Diamond, how do you say it? Jack Damon. Damon Jack is a very old world. It means literally an intermediary between humans and the magical world. So I thought that was the perfect name for him and his job. Yeah. So as Socrates, our word demon comes from it, but it doesn't mean uh, diamond or daemon doesn't have the connotation of demonic. Socrates said he had a, a, a daemon that he listened to, mm. uh, yeah. like a personified conscience kind of thing. Um, Again, it's demon has uh, Christian elements to it. Sure. It's, uh, uh, it's infernal, it's hell and so on. Right. Uh, the Pukas, as I said, they were the, the wild free spirits, the laughter in the woods. They were the last true, shall we say, the last free things in existence. No. So, so let's talk about Jack. So, Jack, I like your 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 metaphor. He's like explosives uh, or explosive ordnance disposal for yeah. uh, from. He's a supernatural troubleshooter. Um, yeah. Who who does he work for? Who's who's engaging Jack to come in here and and solve these crises? Well, that's part of his problem. He doesn't really know um, the the um, the job. He's called the outsider. That's his title. It's it's uh, handed down through the family. His father was the outsider. Grandfather was the outsider. And in each generation, one child in the family will have the gift, and they get to be the outsider, whether they want to or not. And Jack actually walked away and said, no, I'm not doing this. I don't believe in this. And then his father died being the outsider, taking on something that simply he was too old to handle. So Jack has this burden of guilt. He's back doing the job because his father got killed. But he still doesn't really believe what he's doing. And when he meets, you know, the puka, the one, this beautiful young girl, He's in the right place to start looking at his life and saying, what do I really believe? Um, one of the things that we have is there is a mystical job it is to keep track of these outbreaks of mystical things, to um, keep an eye and also to make sure that, that uh, Jack toes the line. And Jack, of course, isn't interested in toeing the line. So you've got a constant conflict with them. And all through the book, there is this feeling of Jack being forced to choose sides. And he's not sure that there is a side, one that's on his side, and two that he genuinely believes in, which is why this long trip through, through the magical history is to show to him, what do you believe? This is something worth believing in. Yeah. The, uh, the department he responds to uh, has a... Uh uh has a split in it or is 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 going through sort of a transition where there's a there's a mm. the previous department head george uh seems sort of more amiable um maybe a little more kind of willing to be a believer in magic even if it's his remit well, the point of george was that george was the father's friend the two mm. of them often worked as partners and worked together so there's a part of Jack that blames George for his father's death. And although they have worked together in the past and they are working together at the beginning of the book, there's always a tension between them. But then he meets the, the young woman who's been appointed to be the new head. Yep. He really doesn't like the way she, she seems to see the job. 
Yeah. Again, it's complicated because she has an attraction to him. And despite himself, he has an attraction to her. So that as the, you go through the book, they are the two sides of the argument. On the one hand, you've got the Puka representing magic. On the other hand, you've got this new head of the organization in charge of science. And there's no middle ground. He has to side with one or the other. And I think it's interesting that there's a, a feeling that he could go either way. It's right down to the end. He's having to look at the two things, decide where he wants to go, what matters, who really loves him, who can he really trust. Mm. It goes right to the very end, right to, up to the last mile before he can finally make a commitment. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah. And the, the magic side, although it is very attractive, uh, mm. sort of reveals itself to be more and more alien also as he goes along. Right. It's not what he expects. There, there are depths he's not seeing. Um, yeah, I mean, we look at the, um, the myths, the legends, the fables. They're always expressed in terms of good and evil. These are the good people, the bad people, the good magic, the bad magic. And what he discovers is the magical history. It's just like the science history. Good and bad is a matter of choice. People, fairies, whatever, choose to take one side or the other. But what I think comes through is the magical history is richer. There are more choices, more options, and there is that level of magics and marvels and wonders that we miss so much that we still tell the old stories. They still matter to us. And going through, um, particularly when you look at, say, like King Arthur and Robin Hood, these characters were a long time thought to be history, then thought to be just myths, now we say, well, there was probably an actual history that letters were based on. You can go back and forth in this and find all kinds of positions. Sure. And when I show um, Arthur and Robin, they're very human people. They have good and bad sides, but they're trying to be the best people they can. And I had a lot of fun reinventing the stories. Mm. I mean, when uh, they go to Arthur's court, uh, some of the knights they meet are not what you expect. There's an elf lady who's a knight. There's, um, I think my favourite, there's a knight who died battling an ogre, but refused to let a little thing like being dead stop him from doing his duty. So he comes back as a ghost and haunts his own empty suit of armour. Yeah. And of course, all the other members of the court refer to him as the dead of night. Yeah, that's one of my... I think I wrote that entire chapter so I could crack that joke. Yeah, that was one of my favorite but, touches. And of course, you've got Robin Hood and his merry men. Again, um, Maid Marian is an elf lady. Um, Little John is a giant. And Will Scarlet is a vampire. And there's a nice bit where he says, uh, uh, so you're a vampire. Do you? Um, no, I don't drink people. Yeah. And again, just be having the magical element. You can bring things to the old stories and make them new and bright and fresh again. And yeah. that's part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll get into some of those rewritings in just a minute here. So, uh, so okay, so it's Jack's family trade slash <coughs> genetic inheritance. Mm -hmm. um, he's got, uh, what, what are the tools of his trade? What are his gifts? What is What distinguishes Jack from the man on the Clapham omnibus and his ability to deal with these situations? First of all, he's got various weapons that he's uh, inherited through the family, which are enabling him to go head to head with very dangerous things. But he's got a background of knowledge. He knows things, he's been through um, various things. He's listened to his father, though, as he said, not as much as he should have. So he comes to situations with knowledge that the rest of us don't have. And what I think I like about him is, he will walk right into the most dangerous of situations and say, right, I'm going to sort this, get out of the way. And he will go headstrong into anything. But the key, I think, to Jack Damon is that he, he may have guilt about why he's doing it. But once he's there, he commits head on. The first thing we, we see him doing, there's a very famous painting called The Fairy Fellas Masterstroke by Richard Dad. Um, it's appeared on record albums, on posters, it's quite famous. It's, um, the, the artist started out doing like um, 
very twee little um, Oberon and Titania having tea in the woods kind of Victorian art. And then unfortunately his mental health deteriorated. He tried to kill his father. He ended up in Broadmoor. And that's where he painted this one famous painting. And I thought, what if there was another one? It's discovered, it's put on the wall in, in the Tate Art Gallery. And it shows two um, different kinds of the light and the dark house going to war, their final battle. And Jack is called in because it discovered the painting has been eating people. People get too close, they get sucked inside, and Jack is called in to find out what happened and to get them back. And he goes into the painting to get them and finds he's in the, the, the battle between the two dark elves and discovers all kinds of terrible dark magic and monsters. And he doesn't flinch, he goes straight in and is like, get out of my way, I'm gonna stamp you into the ground. I think that's what I like about Jack. He, he really does not falter, he does not flinch. He sees what he's doing and he does it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, so some of, some of his, uh, that's your opening sequence there, basically. Yeah. Right? Is, is the music. That introduces him showing who he is and what he does. And that's where he meets the young lady. Yeah. And some of his, some of his kind of gear and equipment, he's got um, what you might call a second sight or a kind of a second sight. Um, like I said, he can see the world more clearly. He can actually see elements of the magical world. I use a, a metaphor at the beginning of the book, the palimpsest. In medieval times, because paper was so rare, they'd quite often scrape off the upper level and write on it again. And sometimes the old text would appear through the new text. And I use that as a metaphor that the magic world was the original text and our current world is the text that was written over. And sometimes the magic shows through and uh, Jack Damon can see these magical fusions. He can see more of what used to be than we can, which is what makes him, you know, determined to do something about it because he can see the damage it does. Yeah. I love the metaphor, the palimpsest. These, these uh, we, we've discovered whole ancient texts that way that were unknown, yeah. had been lost. And then someone looks closely at, a, at another book with a completely unrelated text and the reused paper, you can see that, you know, maybe at a right angle, there's an entirely different yeah. previously okay, written it, page. It's like a hidden history. Yeah, an overwritten history, right? Exactly. It's a great, a great metaphor for, for the story. So, um, so Jack's also got a knife, right? Uh, this is, this is the Arthe. It's a yeah. standard uh, tool in, in all ceremonial magic. It's not really for like fighting duels with. The idea of the Arthame is that it can cut through anything. So like if you use it to draw a circle around you, you're cutting yourself off from the surrounding world. He uses it to sever connections between the magical world and our world. But as he goes through, he finds more and more uses for it. And it becomes again, more metaphorical. It's about severing connections, but it's also about defending what you've got from what's outside and is what attacking it. Yeah, so it, so mostly when he cuts through things, uh, I mean, not to say that people don't get stabbed in this, this is a book in which people get stabbed and there's lots of uh, gleeful, uh, you know, action scenes and, and, uh, and mayhem. I'm a firm believer in action scenes. It's not enough to have yeah. good and evil. They got to fight it out. And if right. they're gonna have a clash between the two, let's make it real. Let's play for all the marbles. Right. Uh, but but the athame is a tool for cutting through unseen bonds or yep. uh, right uh, en energies and 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 things like that. There's uh, a bit where he actually uses it to cut a door in reality so that he can pass through into somewhere else. Right. And I like the idea that essentially he has the tools to, to do what needs doing. But as you go through the book, he uses them less and less as he becomes convinced. Should I be doing this? Yeah. And again, it's almost like he's deciding, I don't need these things. I am what matters. It's my decisions, my um, seeing the, the world as it really is. That's what matters, not forcing it on by, by using tools and, uh, and magical workings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the rest of his toolkit, as we see it, is, is fairly simple, right? We see him with some brass knuckles at one point. Um, He's we got blessed and cursed brass knuckles, yeah. something for all occasions. Yeah. 
and uh, and a bone amulet that causes him causes him to be seen not where he is. Right. I like the idea that you know it's hard for for anybody to fight him because you're never sure where he is. Once he's got the amulet working, he he can you know you'll fight. You think he's right in front of you. He sneaked up behind you, tapping on the shoulder, saying, "I'm here, pal." Yeah. I just liked it. It was it was a sneaky way to uh, to make fights more interesting. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, really what he does is commit, take a stand, and kind of go go straight at the other side, usually. Um, so, uh, all right, so we get the museum sequence. Uh, uh, we see George and Miriam, his successor, uh, and, uh, and we meet uh, Amanda, who's going to accompany yeah. uh, Jack. Uh, and she's very flirtatious and attractive. Um, and so uh, one of the things I was working with with Amanda is that as he's going along and she's showing him the magic world and showing everything and he starts to wonder my job has been to get rid of magic could magic have sent her to defuse me and he's got to decide what does he believe does he trust her I mean she isn't human she says quite bluntly I'm not human I've lived for thousands of years and he starts to wonder, can I have an actual human relationship with something that's so different? It's only gradually as we go through that we discover that her long years and experience, if anything, have made her more human because she's had more time to, to live with people, to experience them, to understand them. Yeah. And of course, you've also got the, the subplot, which is Merlin. Merlin, when we first appear, see him in Arthur's court, is quite an old man. But he sees the future and the past. This is you know, going back to once a future king by T.H. White. He can remember the future as well as the past because it's a poor memory that won't work in both directions. And when we first meet him, he's an old man. When we meet him in Robin times, he's younger. And he's got the long hair and he dresses in silk. He's like the god of prog rock. And then we finally meet him at the end of the book. And he's this schoolboy in a uniform with little round glasses. I think we all know who I'm riffing on there. So there's this nice background of who is Merlin really. And I think when we get to the end of the book and we find out, I think that's a really nice last moment. Oh. I won't, we won't do spoilers on that. Let's just say you should okay. have paid attention. Yeah, you, you need to read the book. Uh, oh yeah. So, so yeah, and it's, so uh, Jack realizes, um, he goes at, he goes to a, coffee shop after the museum scene yeah. uh, uh, with Amanda and he he's no fool right like he's a he's a he's a straight shooter but that doesn't mean he's imperceptive he's not a thug um, mm. and he, he says I mean, she never sure. he works out that she's a puka she doesn't tell him right he just picks up on the clues and just finally says when were you going to tell me you're not human right bang suddenly we realize we're in a whole different scene than we thought we were in fact, if you go back and reread the conversation before that moment, suddenly you'll discover I've put in all kinds of little tricks and, and double meanings to how to how uh, the conversation was going. It's all yeah. there if you pick up on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we get there also. There's a there's a there's a secret society, right? There's a mm. there's a hidden enemy. Yeah, yes, there's the department with his sort of like getting stricter and stricter, but. One of the men in black shows up, mm -hmm. uh, and and in particular, this man, in, this man in black is uh, is is Slender Man, basically, or he he uh, he styles himself in an affectation after the internet meme, maybe. Yeah, he, he's been on he's been on the internet too much, I think. Yeah. And one of the things I was playing with in the book that the bad guys use as their their um, attack dogs, uh, modern myths, modern legends. So you've got the Slender Man, who's the Man of Black. Later on, you've got the alien greys who turn up. And finally, you've got zombies, which is, you know, the, the quintessential modern myth of, of just simply bad guys. You can't talk to them. You can't reason with them. They're just going to keep coming for you. So I deliberately use modern myths to be science's hidden armies to fight the good guys. And it makes a nice clash. You've got, you know, elves on one side and aliens on the other. I mean, I've got a nice uh, scene right at the end set at Stonehenge. And you've got armies of, of aliens, of zombies, of elves, all going head to head in and around Stonehenge, while Jack Damon himself is going head to head 
with the revered head of this sinister order, who, rep again, no spoilers, but represents all that's wrong with science in our world. Right. Um, and that's interesting, right? I mean, there, there, there's a dialogue, and, and, you, and you say, I think, rightly, that, that the sides present themselves as uncompromising. But then at the same time, increasingly, the story is presenting a kind of a unified mythology that sort of says, hey, these things can all coexist. Why can't you have both elves and little gray men? This is what, as we go through the book, Jack is seeing both histories and seeing the good and bad in both. And when we get to the final end of the book, he has to make the decision. And I think I'm fair in saying the decision is not one that anybody else saw coming. It's not the side that Amanda wanted. It's not the side that um, the sinister side wanted. He makes his own decision. And at the very end, we get the world, I think, that we all want to be living in. Yeah. Where good things happen every day. Yeah. So, uh, so, so you've mentioned some of the, it's, it's an ancient world forward. Um, so we, we see uh, uh, Boudicca's uh, Britain, um, and, uh, uh, but, but it's one, it's not the one that you and I know from reading Tacitus or whatever. Exactly, because, I mean, Bodicea, which is the Latin version of the name, they came in and needed to destroy her. She was the last uh, rebellion against Roman rule of Britain. You've got to remember, Roman tried three times to invade Britain. And the first two times we got together and we slaughtered them. Um, famously, the, the, uh, the sea off the coast of Britain was, was crimson with the blood of so many dead Roman soldiers. It wasn't until the third one in 55 BC that the Romans basically sent people in advance as agents provocateurs and turned the various British tribes against each other. So there was no unified force and they were able to come in and take control. Um, Boudicca was part of one of the last big groups, the Iceni, and she was ready to live with Roman rule because they, they said to her, look, you know, you can rule your own people, just acknowledge Rome, pay tribute, let us get on with mining tin, which is what they went there for, essentially, and everything be fine. But the Roman Senate would not accept the idea of a woman in charge of a people. And they forced Rome to send the army in and basically they butchered her people, they flogged her and they raped her and her daughters. And that's, and they said, remember, you've been taught, behave. Well, you don't do that to Boudicca. She put the biggest army Britain had ever seen together and she butchered and slaughtered her way across Britain, slaughtering all the Roman outposts. She got as far as London and she famously filled the River Thames with, with severed heads. Unfortunately, by that time, Rome had heard about it and sent massive reinforcements and just wiped them out completely. That's history as we know it. And I said, you know what? I don't think so. And I did my version, and my version with Boudicca is a whole new thing. It's a pagan thing. It's, um, I think the point, Boudicca herself was very dark skinned. The early Romans, with the light-skinned guys, the Britons were really dark-skinned. Um, they were dark enough that in the 1950s, they would have been made to sit at the back of the bus, put it that way. So I use that as a, as a metaphor, again, for being oppressed. And what we see in Boudicca and her people is very different from what the Romans did when they were determined to paint them as the bad guys. Yeah, uh, I mean, among other things, uh... It, this is this is magic. This is fantasy. So we see, yeah, you know, a London that has centaurs in it and elves. Yeah, this is one of the things I really like. That when I say the magical world, it's not just a human world. You've got elves. You've got centaurs. You've got uh, Greek, Roman, and Celtic gods working, walking quite casually among humanity. If you look at the old writings from that period, they would talk quite openly about having been to walk through London and meeting a Greek or a Roman God, having a casual conversation with them and just walking on. That was just taken for granted in those days. So I thought, okay, this was the first real mixed community of different cultures, different peoples living together, pretty much in harmony. 
this is what King Arthur lived for, to bringing everyone together, not for might makes right, but might to defend people and to encourage these people living together. And Robin Hood is the last time we see that. Everything after that period, it's a human world. Everything has been wiped out. When I say little John's a giant, he's the last giant. There is no other giant left in England. They've all been killed. Uh, Will Scarlet, the vampire, says he hasn't seen one of his own kind for over a century. And even Maid Marion, the elf, is saying that, you know, she appears to be the last of her people. That's what Ro that Robin was doing, trying to keep the dream alive and watching it die before him. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So, uh, by, by the way, your comment about, you know, the uh, agent provocateur coming among the Britons before the Romans came back the third time. Oh, yeah. Just as like a, a side note, Rod, I'm, I'm reading a bunch of uh, various histories about the 11th century. And um, that's an interesting parallel to to uh, Hastings and the Norman invasion, right? I mean, if, again, if, yeah, the you got um, King Harold, yeah, was only a titular king. There were a yeah. whole bunch of kings in which he was supposed to represent, but there was so much division among the people that he was only able to put together, a, frankly, quite small army, and when. They call him William the Conqueror because he won, but he was William the Bastard. He was the Bastard. Right the time. That's what they called him. Bastard by name, bastard by nature. He was a complete and utter swine. Yeah. If you look at what happened after he moved in and took over, there's something called the Harrowing of England, yeah. where he went to various parts that were still resisting and he wiped out whole communities just to make yeah. them shut up and behave. Yep. And you the Saxons were made into serfs, which were slaves in all but name. And that's actually behind the, the legend, the earliest legends of Robin. Robin was seen as the, um, the champion of the oppressed Saxons, of the Saxons. against yeah. Norman overseers. And we should yeah. remember that the English language was a pigeon tongue created so that young Norman nobles could chat up Saxon barmaids. That's <laughs> where it came from. It's a mix of Saxon, Norman and various other languages all mixed together so that Danish. they could get on with each other. And other bits, yeah. The, the 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 in particular right that like Harold, basically ten days before Hastings had had to run all the way north and fight off his own brother in a in a pair of yeah. battles. Uh, what is it, Stamford uh, Bridge, and then there's another one, and then run back. He had to defend his kingdom twice back to back in the same month. Basically. Yeah, uh, and even it was, a, it was a very near run thing. Uh, it's one of those things where you look at it and think, you know what, things could have gone in so many different ways and so many directions, yeah. if only. If I was one of those guys who did alternate histories, I would be concentrating in that period, I think. There's a lot of good material. Do you know the um, 1632 books by Eric Flint yeah. being published? I've recently rediscovered those and I'm working my way through them. I'm just oh, being fascinated by the way the one small change it's like throwing a pebble into a pond and the ripples just spread out further and further, making bigger changes as they go. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I, you know what? I think if I went back to Battle of Hastings, Battle of Senlac, whichever you want to call it, with very small changes, you could change the, the history of the world from that point. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. In fact, there's, there's an interesting story about Robert E. Howard. I think it's Road to Asnahor, where... Um, Harold ends up in the Middle East. They've actually, he didn't die there, but he was, you know, crippled. So they take him off to the Middle East to hide him. And he actually ends up as part of the crusading element. Robert e. Howard did wonderful historical pieces. Yeah. Everyone remembers Conan and Solomon Kane and Bram McBorn, and they're wonderful stories. But look at his history. That man was a scholar. He really understood the period. Yeah. And he would say things like, you know, the crusaders going to battle like a starving man going to a feast. That's a great line. That is a great line. Uh, I would say I got into writing fantasy and science fiction because I started out as a teenager. I was reading Michael Moorcock, hmm. uh, the Elric stories and all those wonderful um, eternal hero stories. And I read tons of them. But what struck me, there was a wonderful line in one of his early Elric stories. Um, he's at the court of Queen Ishana, I think, 
and the uh, her magician is jealous of Elric. So he steals Elric's sword, Stormbringer, leaving Elric as this weak, feeble creature. And he throws this, you know, crippled Elric at the queen's feet and says, there's your mighty lover. What do you think now? And the queen looks down and says, my poor white wolf, they've drawn your fangs. Now there's no one left to savage me in the nights. And I thought, I want to write dialogue like that. <laughs> Except you have to be Mike Moorcock to make that kind of dialogue work. But those books, that kind of wonderful, weird imagination he had, that was what started me going. I thought, I want to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And here I am all these years later, still doing it. Doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I mean, there's a few comments about some of the other kind of time periods in the story here. Uh, the Beowulf, yeah. your, your Beowulf story is very fun. It's a little re reimagining of the Beowulf legend. Um, Beowulf I thought there was a basic mystery in this. I mean, we all know that the essential thing, there's a hall, uh, Grendel arrives to attack it. After uh, the hero kills Grendel, we discover there's actually another bigger monster, the mother which if you think about it, is the plot of aliens. <laughs> um, and I thought, there's a mystery in this. How does Grendel keep getting into the hall? It's surrounded by warriors, it's packed full of warriors, yet somehow he gets in there and kills all these people. I thought, something's going on here. And the more I thought of it, I thought, well, I've got an idea. And I built the whole story around what's really going on as opposed to what we think is going on. And this story is important because it's the first time we see the dark side of the magic world. Yes, you've got Beowulf, who is a hero. Yes, you've got the setting, you've got the monster, but it's not clear cut who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And it's actually a very tragic story at its end. Yeah. And Amanda shows in this quite deliberately to say, I'm not trying to fool you. I'm not saying that magic is all sweetness and light and Disney, but, it's still a more human world, still a, a world of human choices, rather than the world that science has made, where we feel more and more divorced from the world we live in and we feel we have less control over our lives. I mean, the point I make is if your computer goes wrong, you have no idea how to fix it. You're reliant on somebody else to come in and fix it for you, which means in a sense, the computer is in charge, not you. That's yeah. not quite the world that we thought we were going to have. Right. And how is that not magic anyway? I sometimes wonder. I mean, I sometimes look at my computer and think, hmm, which of us is actually deciding what I'm watching? <laughs> hey, you need to look at this. People who are like this bought this. People who watch this piece of YouTube watch this piece of YouTube. I'm thinking, really? Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's like when I first started out and I first set my email account up. I swear to God, one of the first pieces of spam I got was, would you like to meet other naturists in your area? And I'm thinking, what do you mean other? What list am I on? <laughs> that is uh, wonderful. I, mm -hmm. uh, for about six months, Facebook would show me, I think, I think what I, I think what happened is I, uh, a gay friend of mine announced his wedding or whatever. And I said, oh, congratulations. And then for yeah. six months, I got showed gay, shown gay dating sites. And like, that's fine, right? <laughs> I'm not gay as it happens. And my profile said mm. married to this woman over here. Facebook gives right. me the ads. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. So uh, one more, one, the, the one, the one, not that we need to exhaustively go through all the stations. They're, they're all delightful. They're all different, um, which gives the book a very, a very uh, uh, nice texture. Uh, there's a there's a stop in 1615, which is 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 interesting. It's literally, uh, well, basically, it's literally played out on stage. But it also is sort of set up so that it feels like a stage where you have some characters kind of come on and off and have have an intense dialogue. Um, tell me what what's interesting to you about Elizabeth and Christopher Marlowe and, and a little about that scene, maybe. I wanted to do something Shakespearean because you know our as I said, our idea of elves comes from largely uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, I've been uh, appearing in uh, open-air Shakespeare productions for over 30 years now, and I have a great fondness 
for the Shakespeare plays. But I thought that would be a bit too on the nose to do a Shakespeare piece. So let's go slightly sideways. Let's have Kit Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe is a fascinating character. As time goes on, we're discovering more and more about him. He was not just a playwright. He was actually a British secret agent who worked for Walsingham and for Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth. Yep. There was a rumor that he was related to Queen Elizabeth. They were both redheads. Which you play on. And I thought, let's have a piece actually set in the Globe Theater, the original the one that burned down. And we've got Christopher Marlowe, we've got Queen Elizabeth, and we've got the whole Elizabethan setting. Let's do something fun with that. And there is this marvelous moment where, where, where Queen Elizabeth looks at Marlowe and says, wait a minute, I, I seem to remember you died. And of course, he's been brought back for this thing. And gradually, you realize you're not in the, in, in the story you think you're in. It's being manipulated by outside forces. But Christopher Marlowe is simply a fascinating character. And I wanted to work with him. And the minute I brought him in, suddenly all these other elements came in and said, hey, we belong too. And what I thought was going to be a fairly straightforward piece became much more interesting, much more fun. Yeah. It's a little uh, reminiscent of Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you know, it's a little yeah. kind of like, like Partly right that. into Shakespeare from the side. Um, yeah, I, I was um, in the production of Hamlet, I was playing Osric, which is a difficult part. It's a comedy part, but um, only the lines have survived from Shakespeare's play, not the physical business that was lost. So presumably Osric had lots of physical business, which is now lost. So. I'm playing Osric with just the lines. I got laughs. I did okay in the part, I think, but it's difficult. And one of the things that comes out of playing that is that you've got a very difficult choice to make because there's the historical uh, Denmark, Hamlet, and all the rest of the family are real people, and you've got the, the myth of Hamlet. And so once I thought that, I thought, yes, again, we're back in the, the, the mixture of what's real, what's myth, what's legend, what can we do to have a bit of fun here? Yeah. And I think, I think have a bit of fun here maybe is a good way to sort of think about the overall uh, feel of the book. Um, it's, it's sort I, of... I've always done this. In my, I mean, I've done so many series down the years. I mean, there's a Deathstalker. Um, in the third Deathstalker novel, I stopped the story dead so I could do a 200 page chapter, which is Apocalypse Now starring the Muppets. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. That is exactly what it is. It has nothing to do with the rest of the book or the rest of the series. I just did it because I wanted to. <laughs> and people come to me at convention and say, you know what? That's my favorite bit. <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, that's you can't have fun. What are you doing this for? Yeah. So, uh, so thematically, it's it's the book's maybe somewhere kind of in a similar space to Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. You know, it's a it's very English. It's very about about magic and asking questions about you know can magic return? What is life like without magic? But well, play so that the key is it's a romance. Yeah, it's a screwball say. supernatural romance. It's about these two characters how they find each other. Yep. And how because they find each other, it changes everything. Yep. Played played as a screwball romance with a lot of big action scenes in it. Oh yeah. yeah. And a lot of weird shit in the background. Yeah. Uh Simon, what what a lot of fun. Um Okay. What uh uh anything else you want to tell us about the book? Uh that, that any, any questions I should have asked but didn't? I don't think so. I think we cover most of it. It's um it's one off. It's yeah, it ends. Pretty I think, it, like I said, I went into it with not knowing where I was going when I started, and I was just delighted as it went on that it, it practically flowed out of me. It was one of the easiest books that I think I've ever written, and I was just delighted at the end because yes, I actually did do what I wanted to do, and a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know I was going to do, and that's the best way to write a book. Very cool. Very cool. What uh, what are you what are you working on now? What what, what can we expect from you in the future? Well, at the moment, I've got uh, a new Ishmael Jones book in with Bain. They're taking a look at the proposal. Uh, we, they've, I've handed in a second uh, Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated book. Mm -hmm. That's called Hide and Seek. 
and I've got uh, a third one as a proposal. The first Jekyll and Hyde book was about whatever happened to all the old monsters. Because at the end of the 19th century, everybody believed in werewolves and vampires and ghouls. Then you start the 20th century and nobody believes in them. They're just stories. I thought something must have happened. I thought, what if they looked at mass communication and said, you know what? Everybody knows about steaks and garlic and the rest of it now and silver bullets. So they all disappeared into the underworld of crime. They're still preying on humanity, but in a different way. All but one monster who wouldn't lower himself to be a criminal, insisted on being a plain dealing monster. And that was Edward Hyde. So he ends up rather oddly as humanity's defender. And he's handing out the, what's left of Dr. Jess's elixir to make new hides to be his army to fight the, uh, the monster clans. Well, no big surprise at the end, our heroes wipe out the monsters and that's the end of the book. So I thought, okay, what do I do for a sequel? I know, whatever happened to all the old aliens? What happened to Martians and bug-eyed monsters and all the rest of them? So they're back and they're fighting aliens and this time, oh, they're in real trouble. Because the first chapter is like the ending of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, ho, ho, ho. So that's in, that's going to be coming out. Um, I have put in a proposal to Bain to do a new Deathstalker series. It's been a long time, but I was asked by Bain to do a short story for their Sword and Planet anthology. Oh, yeah. And I ended up writing the first new Deathstalker story in about 15 years. And that seems to have gone down very well. A lot of people have been saying, damn, we, we, we really like this and we'd like to see more. So I put a proposal in. Maybe we can do a new Deathstalker series. We will see. Fantastic. Fingers crossed. What a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, because I really want to do it. <laughs> well, uh, once again, hey, the book is for Love of Magic, uh, out now from Bain Books in hardcover uh, and all uh, all the ebook formats. Uh, Simon, hey, thanks very much for joining us today. Good to be here. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. The lounge was the largest public room on the ship, but 15 passengers, 13 crewers, and four Marines made for cozy quarters even without the seven armed troughs lined up along the wall. Ray and Tarvin were absent, presumably having been taken elsewhere. Johnny kept his fingers crossed that anyone who noticed would assume the two missing Marines were with them. There had been few communications with the Troths during the war to which Johnny had been privy, but back then he'd gotten the impression the aliens weren't much for social or even political small talk, and the boarding party spokesman did nothing to shake that image. This ship and its resources are now possessions of the Dreashachki domain of the Troft Assemblage, the aliens' translator, Repeater, stated in flat tones. The crew and passengers will remain aboard as tokens of human consensus order violations. The so-named Troft Corridor has been reclaimed. So they were to be held aboard. That was a stroke of luck Johnny had hoped for but dared not to expect. If Ray had wangled this concession, perhaps he was good for something after all. His thoughts were cut off abruptly as an armored but weaponless marine was hauled through the door by two troughs and put into line with the other prisoners. Mentally, Johnny shrugged. He'd expected the better equipped of his two sleepers to be found fairly quickly. The other marine, in shirt sleeves and armed only with a knife and garrote, should withstand the search somewhat better. Not that his freedom or capture ultimately made much difference. As long as he drew the troughs attention away from the civilians, he was serving his purpose. Though Johnny doubted that he realized that. 
The prisoners were kept in the lounge another hour, leading Johnny to wonder whether they would be staying there until the troughs were satisfied everyone had been found. But as they were led back to the passenger cabin section without the second Marine making his appearance, he decided the reason for the delay was probably more prosaic, that the aliens had been conducting careful sensor searches of their rooms with an eye toward turning them into cells. The guess turned out to be correct, and a few minutes later Johnny found himself back in his cabin, though not quite alone. The three sensor discs the troughs had attached to selected sections of wall and ceiling were rather conspicuous as such things went, nearly two centimeters across each with faintly translucent surfaces. A quick check showed that the bathroom and even the closet were equipped with discs of their own. What they might pick up besides an optical picture Johnny didn't know, but it hardly mattered. As long as they were in place, he was unable to act. Ergo, his first task was to get rid of them. It was probably the first time in twenty-seven years that his arc-thrower might have done him some good. But then he hardly could have used it without announcing in large red letters that he was a cobra. Fortunately, there were other ways to accomplish what he had in mind. Returning to the bathroom, he selected a tube of burn salve from the cabinet first aid kit. He was in the process of coating the second of the main room's discs with a thick layer of cream when the inevitable trough charged in. "'You will cease this activity,' the alien said, the monotone translator voice editing out whatever emotion lay behind the words. "'I'll be damned if I will!' Johnny snarled back, putting all the righteous indignation he could into both voice and body language on the off chance this was one of those troughs who could read such nuances. "'You attack us, pirate our ship, paw through our cabins. Just look at the mess you left my mag cards in. And now you have the damn nerve to spy on us? Well, I'm not going to stand for it, you hear me?' The alien's upper arm membranes rippled uncertainly. "'Not all of you seem bothered by our security needs.' "'Not all of you.' which implied Drew and Harmon had followed his instructions to kick up similar fusses. Three wasn't a very big crowd to hide in, but it was better than being blatantly unique. Not all of us grew up with private bathrooms either, he retorted. But those who did can't do without them. I want my privacy, and I'm going to get it. The censors will remain, the troft insisted. Then you're going to have to chain me up, Johnny snarled, crossing his arms defiantly. The alien paused and Johnny's enhanced hearing caught a stream of high-speed troughed catter talk. It was another minute before the translator came back online. "'You spoke of privacy in the bathroom. If the sensor is removed from in there, will that satisfy your needs?' Johnny pursed his lips. It would, actually, but he didn't want to accept the compromise too eagerly. "'Well, I could try that, I suppose.' The troughed stepped past him and disappeared into the bathroom, returning a moment later with a sensor disc in one hand and some tissues from the dispenser in the other. He offered the latter to Johnny. It took the cobra a second to understand. Then, taking them, he proceeded to wipe clean the two discs he'd disabled. When he was finished, the troft strode to the door and left. He gave in awfully easily, was Johnny's first thought. A careful check of the bathroom, though, showed it was indeed clear of all sensors. Returning to the main room, he sat back down with his comm board, remembering to maintain an air of discomfort, and pretended to read. He waited an hour, ten minutes of which time was spent in the bathroom to see if the troughs would get nervous and send in a guard, but they evidently decided there was nothing dangerous he could do in there, and no one disturbed him. Taking slightly higher than normal doses of his anemia and arthritis medicines, he returned to his comm board, and when the drugs took effect, it was time to go. He began with a normal human pattern for a pre-bedtime shower. Pajamas carried into the bathroom accompanied by the hiss of water against tile. But under cover of the sound, Johnny's fingertip lasers traced a rectangular pattern on the thin metal panel between sink and shower stall, and within a minute he had a passable opening to the cramped service corridor behind the row of cabins. Leaving the water running, he squeezed into the corridor and began sidling his way forward. The Mansana's designer had apparently felt that separate ventilation systems for the various service lane levels would be a waste of good equipment, and had opted instead for periodically spaced grills to connect all of them together. It was a quirk that would ordinarily be of no use to anyone in Johnny's position, 
as the cramped quarters and high ceilings discouraged vertical movement almost as much as solid floors would have. But then the designer hadn't been thinking about cobras. Johnny passed three more cabins before finding a grill leading to the deck above. Bending his knees the few degrees the walls allowed, he jumped upward, stifling a grunt as a twinge of pain touched the joints. Catching the grill, he hung suspended for a moment as he searched out the best spots to cut. Then, with leg servos pressing his feet against the walls in a solid friction grip, he turned his lasers against the metal mesh. A minute later, he was through the hole and sidling down that level service corridor. Two minutes after that, he was peering out the corridor's access door at the darkened equipment room into which it opened. Next door would be the EVA-ready room. Beyond that was the main hatch and the probable connection to the troughed ship. Johnny eased out the equipment room door into the deserted corridor, alert for sounds of activity that weren't there. The main hatch was indeed open, the boarding tunnel beyond snaking enough to block any sight of the alien ship's own entryway. Whatever security the troughs had set up was apparently at the far end of the tunnel, an arrangement that would be difficult but not impossible to exploit. But any such operation required first that the Mansana be under human control again, and to accomplish that he would have to retake the bridge. Passing the hatch, he continued on forward. The spiral stairway leading to the bridge had not been designed with military security in mind, but the troughs had added one of their sensor discs to the spiral in a position impossible to bypass. From a semi-shadowed position down the hall, Johnny gritted his teeth and searched his memory for a way to approach the stairway from behind, but any such route would take a great deal of time, and time was in short supply at the moment. On the other hand, if the troughs saw an apparently unarmed man approaching their position, they were unlikely to greet him with an automatic blaze of laser fire. They would probably merely point their weapons and order him to surrender, after which they would return him to his cell and find out how he'd escaped. If they followed safe military procedure and called in before confronting him, but he'd just have to risk that. Now, while the Mensana was still in or near the corridor, was their best opportunity for escape. Gritting his teeth, he started for the staircase. He moved quickly, though no faster than a normal human could have, and no challenges or shots came his way before he reached the stairs and started up. His cat-like steps were small bomb blasts in his enhanced hearing, but between them he could hear the unmistakable sounds of sudden activity overhead. He kept going, and when he raised his head cautiously above the level of the bridge floor, he found himself facing a semicircle of four troughed handguns. "'You will make no sudden movements,' a translator voice ordered as he froze in place. "'Now! Continue forward for questioning!' Slowly, Johnny continued up the stairs and into the bridge, keeping his hands visible. The four guards were backed up by three more at the Mansana's consoles, armed but with weapons holstered. Sitting atop the communications board was a small box of alien design, the troughs link with their own ship and translator, most likely, and in a highly vulnerable position. "'How did you escape from your quarters?' one of the guards asked. Johnny focused on the semicircle. Call your captain, he said. I wish to speak to him about a trade. The troughs' arm membranes fluttered. You are in no position to trade anything. How do you know? Johnny countered. Only your captain can make that assessment. The troughs hesitated. Then slowly he raised a hand to a collar pin and let loose with a stream of catter talk. Another pause, and the communications box abruptly spoke. This is the ship, Commander. What do you propose to trade? Johnny pursed his lips. It was a question he'd been working on since the troughs first came aboard, and he had yet to come up with a really satisfactory answer. Trade back to the troughs aboard the Mensana? But the aliens didn't think of hostage as a word applicable to living beings. The Mensana itself? But he hardly had real control of the ship. Still, if politics had taught him anything, it was the value of a plausible bluff. I offer you your own ship in return for the humans you hold, plus the release of this vessel, he said. There was a long pause. Repeat, please. You offer me my own domain ship? That's right. Johnny nodded. From this ship I have the power to destroy yours. For obvious example, 
A hard starboard yaw would tear out the boarding tunnel, depressurizing that part of your domain ship, and a simultaneous blast with the drive at this range would cause extensive damage to your own engines. Is this possibility not worth trading to avoid? His captor's arm membranes were fluttering at half-mast now. Either the room temperature had risen dramatically, or he had indeed hit a sensitive nerve. Commander, he prompted. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Simon R. Green and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.